This conversation was hosted on AirChat. You can learn more at getairchat.com. Links to relevant rooms and accounts on AirChat are in the description. In this episode, Nawal Ravikant, Brett Hall, Keith, and I talk about knowledge, constraints helping and hampering progress, the free market being a truth-seeking mechanism, wealth and the repertoire of possible transformations, free will, consciousness, and more. Hope you enjoy. All knowledge is made up of explanations that solve problems. Moral knowledge cannot be derived from the senses, but so can scientific knowledge. That doesn't mean knowledge in both senses does not exist. Science and morality are both based not on empiricism, the misconception that we derive all our knowledge from sensory experience, but on reason. All knowledge is conjectural. There is no ultimate basis for any kind of knowledge. And so it follows, as the physicist and philosopher David Deutsch said in episode 22 of Sam Harris's Making Sense podcast, that protecting the means of improving knowledge is more important than any particular piece of knowledge. There's something I've been thinking about with my to-be co-author. We typically think of constraints as barriers and limitations that we need to overcome. And the pioneer is someone who smashes the limitations of their ancestors. But this conception has it rather backwards. Progress comes from discovering, refining, and most importantly, conforming to constraints. And when this is achieved, the subsequent progress is explosive. This is because the discovery of constraints is just another way of describing the growth of knowledge. And knowledge growth is the backbone of all progress. Obviously, this process is most evident in the history of science, which is essentially a story of successive discoveries of the constraints of the natural world. Because what are laws of physics, right? Laws of physics are constraints on the physical universe. So when the Wright brothers discovered the lift equation and they embraced the constraints of the lift equation, uh, we essentially were able to overcome being constrained to the ground. Of course, not all constraints are productive. Constraints that hamper progress all share a common feature. They hamper criticism. Taboos and dogmas come easily to mind, but any kind of oppression of general coercion ultimately represents a failure to encourage or even consider criticism. And we can call these kinds of constraints unproductive constraints, as they are, and constraints that thrive in an environment of criticism, productive constraints. Thanks, Arjun. That's a great way of looking at it, approaching it as constraints rather than the growth of knowledge. You're actually looking at it as constraints and falsehood. And so as we eliminate falsehood, we narrow the darkness and then we can more clearly see where the light is. That model makes a lot more sense to me, in fact, even than saying that we are expanding the light. Uh, because as good popper students would say, you are eliminating falsehoods, not proving justified true beliefs or truths. Interesting perspective. I like it. Yeah, I would say that discovering constraints is the same thing as the growth of knowledge. We're not proving anything, but we're eliminating falsehoods, and this adds to our repertoire of knowledge. Imagine you're in an unlit room which is littered with heavy furniture that is invisible in the darkness. An accurate map of all these obstacles would allow for the greatest transit times for you. You'll be able to move around in the room if you know where the obstacles are. And so knowledge of these constraints potentiates progress. I love the analogy. And of course, the constraints, resistance, um, development makes a lot of sense. However, I think I have to throw in there that a lot of really big innovations 
they're completely orthogonal to like in the sense that it has nothing to do with it. So there's some constraints of like better, 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 but then there's also step changes in technology that make all constraints irrelevant. So I would add that in there as another pretty significant path as to how knowledge proceeds or grows. Thanks, Keith. So that path of step changes that you mentioned a lot of big innovations happen from, which I'd love for you to describe further, I wouldn't say they make all constraints irrelevant. Sure, those innovations may be out of the ballpark and there's no refining of prior constraints there. But, you know, these innovations definitely in unknown territory, but then there's a new constraint that we discover and not prove knowledge, but a constraint. And that adds to a leap in our knowledge of constraints. And uh, yeah, that I wouldn't say they make constraints. I wouldn't say they make constraints irrelevant. Yeah, I, I more pointed it out as complementary. Like I think constraints is actually the best way to look at um, a lot of the progress that happens. Uh, I just know there are some things that have just complete, like classic example would be the, you know, um, Ford said that if he wanted to, if he asked people what he should build, they would have said a faster horse. Um, when he invented the car and things like um, the combustion engine and the petroleum economy, fertilizer, antibiotics, those sorts of like completely kind of out of nowhere. But I, again, I think the constraints builds up builds up to that. I think you build up like sort of a, a an amount of resistance energy and then that causes you to eventually just leap over the fence entirely. Okay, so let's have a look at uh, what, you said earlier, Arjun, uh, you said progress comes from conforming to constraints, conforming. This almost makes it sound like we're coerced into meeting those constraints. But as you hint at, and this is something physicists make a big deal about, constraints are just what the physical laws are about. The laws of physics are defined more by what they rule out than what they they permit. What they permit is always a literally infinite array of possibilities. But it's what is ruled out that teaches us something new about reality. So here's a controversial take. It's not in truth a problem that these constraints exist. For example, we cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Okay, that seems like a constraint that's a problem. Here's something you can't do. You can't go faster than the speed of light. But The laws of physics impose this constraint from relativity about moving through space faster than light. But in fact, this is no problem for getting anywhere at all in the universe, however quickly you like, strange as that sounds. Relativity means that you can get anywhere in your frame of reference arbitrarily quickly. It doesn't matter that there's this constraint on how fast you can go. So how do we square that circle? How can we both say there's a constraint on how fast you can go, but simultaneously you can get anywhere in the universe you like as fast as you want? Aren't these two things strictly in contradiction to one another? Well, no, that's the whole point of relativity. Light speed limits do not affect how fast you can get somewhere. A problem for you might be that if you do travel to the other side of the galaxy at very, very close to the speed of light, and then come back, you'll arrive home to find everyone and everything you know and love on Earth is long gone because in their frame of reference, hundreds of thousands of years 
have passed on Earth, assuming, you know, you, you travelled 0.1% shy of the speed of light or something. But of course, in your frame of reference, you get to the other side of the galaxy and back however quickly you like, or almost as quickly as you like. The laws of physics say you cannot travel beyond the speed of light, but in your frame, due to time dilation, length contraction, you know, relativistic effects, in other words, how long something takes according to you when moving is different to those not moving and left behind on Earth. The problem then is, can you deal with being a time traveller into the future who can never return to the time they left? Uh, There's also, of course, a problem about how to accelerate to near the speed of light and what kind of energy that would take. Perhaps in the future we can manipulate the Higgs field and move matter around like photons by decoupling the Higgs mechanism from the particles making up our bodies. I don't know, entirely speculative. So anyways, constraints on physical reality aren't this thing like, you know, an unfair law, which if only it were different, life would be better. Uh, no, they're just telling you something, these constraints, these physical constraints are telling you something about how physical reality is. They tell you how you can make rapid progress by, well, telling you, you're wasting your time developing a grand theory of how life can proliferate in the universe on the assumption it can spread throughout that universe arbitrarily quickly. But it can't. It's limited to a finite speed of propagation imposed by physical laws. So whatever the case, it's not that we maximise progress by conforming to constraints. After all, we cannot do otherwise. We necessarily work within the constraints imposed by physical reality. We have no choice in the matter. The whole point of making progress in science and reason more generally is to not conform, to refuse to conform, not refuse to conform to the laws of physics or the laws of epistemology or biology or whatever. Because that's a strict contradiction. It makes no sense. It's to understand distinctions between limits imposed by physical reality, which are a kind of constraint versus those other kinds of constraints which might be called cultural, uh, which are not imposed by physical reality, but rather just by our minds. Now, you did say all of this. In a sense, I'm just emphasising what you did say. Um, These cultural constraints are different to the physical constraints because the cultural ones are, you know, perhaps the things we're not supposed to think about. They're constraints imposed on actual progress. Those things are not scientific or philosophical laws or principles. Rather, they're just the problems that can arise which get in the way of error correction. Of course, you know all this, so there's no substantive disagreement here. You explain that distinction between the constraints imposed by physics and constraints that hamper progress. And those ones that hamper progress are ideas, not physical laws. I'm just wanting to observe that the term conform really only earns its cachet in cases where one has a choice in conforming or not. And there's no choice when it comes to the constraints imposed by physical reality. I like that you've pointed out the difference between physical and cultural constraints and how we cannot do otherwise but conform to physical constraints. But then there's an important difference between simply conforming to these constraints and leveraging them by discovery of them explicitly, perhaps putting them in mathematical notation. And even culturally, there can be productive and unproductive constraints. 
the rules of chess are a very productive set of constraints, and the same could be said about traffic laws. The idea that you have to drive on the left side of the road in India allows for traffic to move more freely. And of course, we can choose to not conform to these constraints, unlike physical laws. And cultural constraints represent knowledge too. Gender norms can help men and women engage in productive relationships by leveraging their differences to further each other's ends. But gender roles may include mis- many mistaken constraints, such as ideas that you know husbands should dictate their wives' affairs. And some cultures have done better than others at removing bad ideas uh, and preserving and expanding good ones. Arjun, it's uh, interesting and useful to build a taxonomy of constraints and examples of good and bad ones on both sides. I do, however, agree with Brett that perhaps you should consider calling it something other than constraints. Constraints have such a negative connotation that you're going to be swimming upstream, always trying to undo that connotation. So I really do suggest thinking that one through. We can lament that people should be more intelligent and not use the word constraints in a negative way all the time or to be able to look past the other connotation. But the reality is that human brains are also, in some sense, like language learning models, always trying to autocomplete and are using simple heuristics. And as long as the word constraint lives in a part of the brain where it's tagged as negative, uh, you're just creating unnecessarily unnecessary work for yourself. Although I have to admit, I'm just a critic here. I can't think of a better word yet offhand either. I have a thesis that any system that doesn't get its feedback from free markets or from nature eventually gets corrupted because free markets and nature are both truth-seeking mechanisms or truth-embodied mechanisms. And as such, they're going to give you accurate feedback. On the other hand, any feedback that comes from other individuals or from culture uh, is often false. And so in that sense, it's not just cultural feedback. I would argue that it is cultural feedback that is not filtered through free markets. So if people are telling you, don't do this, that's one thing. But if the markets are voting against you doing something consistently over a period of time, then they're exposing a form of truth to you as well. That's a constraint that you better pay attention to. It's not infallible, of course, and it's not even unchangeable. Markets do change their minds in the face of new data. But there is a level of truth in the constraints that free markets impose through the discipline that they impose that I think is more valid than a cultural constraint, but maybe less valid than a natural physical constraint. In any case, maybe we're splitting hairs, but it's sort of fun to think about. As an aside, your speed of light uh, example was really fascinating, Brett. Uh, I, I always did make the mistake of thinking of it as a constraint upon the traveler, but you're correct. The faster you move through space, the slower you move through time, and therefore the traveler can just go anywhere as long as they don't mind also being a time traveler into the future. Yes, I agree entirely with that. I might even go a step further and suggest that free market constraints are in fact a fact about physical reality. You can't spontaneously generate wealth. Wealth is generated by creating value. Value is created by constructing an explanation of what works, and that is an objective fact about reality. But like you say, this is splitting hairs, but I'm all in on reason and physics, and so I actually think that the distant future does provide us with something that looks like a physics of knowledge creation. And if we have that, and I think we can, construct a theory already as providing clues to that, We can even have a physics of wealth creation, which would be a special case. 
what laws objectively in reality permit rapid wealth creation and what hampers it. I don't think those laws are arbitrary, and I think no doubt you would agree with that. I think we're a long way from writing down formally these laws of physics of wealth creation. And even if we could, it's not going to, you know, tell a founder or an investor what to do in specific cases. It would just be a useful way of critiquing approaches other than free market solutions. We already do have arguments that critique that, of course, but people ignore them. (laughs) I think one day they'll have to ignore actual stated formal laws of physics to argue for socialism and so on. And I want one more thing for Arjun, and I do, I really liked your analogies and explanations, but I want to say these constraints imposed by reality are not obstacles as such, which your heavy furniture in the dark would be, um, you know, t- that, that seems to indicate that they're tending to be hazards impeding the speed or efficiency with which you can get from A to B. But these constraints are, well, they're more like the snakes and ladders in a snakes and ladders game because some of the constraints, so-called constraints, when found, well, they're the ladders and they don't look like regular obstacles at all. They can be the very means by which your progress turns out to be able to occur much faster than your pre-existing theory told you was ever possible. So it's almost like even this word constraint uh, has some philosophical baggage. It can colour our understanding of this issue and put it in a kind of negative light. The constraints are just, you know, here's what can't be done. You can't make the most rapid progress in the snakes and ladders game by moving in one step to the end of the board. That's not a permitted move. You can only go as far as the dice roll during any turn says you can. But concluding that therefore it will take X number of dice rolls minimum to win the game will severely overestimate the time that it in fact could take. The reality of the situation actually permits much faster winning than your initial theory about the physics of the game would suggest without knowing all the other rules or constraints imposed by the game. Namely, a deep understanding of the constraints reveals these so-called obstacles can in fact, some of them can drastically improve progress and accelerate it. They're the ladders of physical realities. Yes, snakes are also a feature of reality, a constraint or an obstacle, if you like, but not all constraints are like As usual, we got to be careful with some terms here. Certainly, if truth is efficiency, then free markets certainly find that, right? Over time, they find the equilibrium between... Um, assets at capital allocated and overall return to customers. Now, you could make an argument that reality is like that, but in that case, I think you only have to say that the free market is to reality and that it's the Feynman path integral of resource allocation. So if truth is just reality and reality is bound by the most efficient path between any two states, then free markets can be that. However, there's a different version of truth that doesn't necessarily line up with reality. And of course, then we get into much squishier territory. And I think I'll push back on the wealth creation thing being knowable, because by definition, I think it's more like Claude Shannon's information. It's pure surprise. The reason it creates wealth is because it's a shock versus what prior expectations were. 
A surprise might be why it didn't exist in the system before, but knowledge creation leads to wealth creation when you can effectively do more physical transformations, when you can affect a physical transformation where you change one thing that wasn't useful, wasn't at the time a resource into something that is useful, that is a product, then you've created a new physical transformation. Yes, there's a surprise, but there is still a physical activity going on there where through knowledge you have transformed something that wasn't a resource into something that was a resource and transformed something that wasn't a useful product into something that was was a useful product. So it's not just surprise. So Surprise is necessary in any discovery or creation, but not sufficient. So to summarize, in your view, yes, surprise is needed for wealth creation, but surprise is part of any creation. It's the wealth part, however, that may create an additional layer of physics on top of it that we can perhaps more clearly elucidate. An example of the constraint that Brett is talking about, which may enable more things as a ladder rather than be a shoot or a snake is what happened when David Deutsch extended the church Turing hypothesis to be to taking into account real paper and not just imagined paper. Turns out quantum computers are more powerful than regular computers in many ways because they deal with real world quantum effects. So I think Brett has talked about this in the past, including the quip from Feynman that, you know, we didn't even understand paper. Another example of constraints being useful and not employing a negative nomenclature of constraints are contracts. A contract is a voluntary mutual constraint that you enter into with somebody else. You constrain your future actions in exchange for something in the contract. For example, I will do X if you do Y. If you give me money now, I will produce this product later and give it to you. Or if I produce this product and you produce that product, we can combine them together as inputs and create a third product. And we all agree to do that. That is a constraint upon our future behavior, but that in turn allows for greater greater creativity and for wealth creation. As far as wealth creation being based on surprise, I'm more making that analogy because in physics, there's no like new dimension that all of a sudden particles figure out and their path integral changes. Like now the path of least resistance is different than it was before. However, that happens in the economy all the time. And I suppose it's just that the laws of com- commerce and economy are man-made and subjective to a certain extent, and the laws of physics are not. Or rather... I suppose there's some chance the laws of physics are man-made or consciousness-made, which reminds me of one of the funniest stories I've ever heard, which I believe to be true, which is that P.G. Woodhouse, the famous early 20th century British author, was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. And when he was asked at a press conference if he believed that Sigmund Freud's subconscious existed, his answer without missing a beat was, not that I'm aware of. The laws of physics may be unchanging, but our knowledge of the laws of physics is changing. And so there's surprise in our knowledge of the laws of physics as we discover new laws of physics, as we revise our understanding of the laws of physics, as we change our knowledge of the laws of physics, there's always discovery, there's always surprise, there's always creation. So the surprise is a fundamental element of knowledge creation, not of the underlying reality underneath. To the underlying reality underneath, there are no surprises. Yeah, I think maybe we're agreeing or maybe I uh, took the wrong impression away from what Brett said. I thought he was he was saying that essentially um, maybe wealth creation could be smoothed out and made more stable um, 
And I don't, my reaction was that I don't think that's possible purely because we don't know what we don't know. And frankly, maybe overvaluations or valuations that later get crushed down are like um, sort of the probability wave collapsing, right? Where you've got a hundred different investments, but only one of them takes it. So at a certain point, the probability function of the 99 failures collapsed to zero. And that's when, you know, I suppose some value has been destroyed. But essentially, you couldn't know a priori which of those hundred was actually going to absolutely going to be the value creator. Creativity is a genuine phenomenon in the universe. I think it's real. Things come into existence that weren't there before. Knowledge is created and wealth is created. You know, literally, there wasn't wealth there and now there is. So, whatever the ultimate laws of physics are, they have to be compatible with this fact of the universe. They have to allow for the possibility of things coming into, into existence that weren't there before. So this is one reason why, for example, classical laws of physics, Newton's laws of physics, could not possibly have been correct. You know, good as they are as approximations, that kind of easily predicted outcomes of systems given classical laws of physics cannot be the way the real universe works because the real universe contains creativity, inherent unpredictability. This doesn't mean things aren't determined by the laws of physics. They are. Everything that happens is determined by the laws of physics. But those deterministic laws of physics themselves allow for phenomena which are inherently unpredictable. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. You can be determined to not be predictable and determined to allow creativity in the universe determined to produce phenomena that under Newton's laws of physics wouldn't have. So, Brett, this starts now impinging upon the thorny issue of free will. If there are deterministic laws of physics, some people take that to mean that there is no free will. Everything is predetermined. But just because it's determinable does not mean that it can be predicted and there is still creativity. And so as long as creativity, then perhaps that is what gives us the existence of free will. I know you've done entire podcasts on this, and I confess to not having listened to all of them. But the simple determinism of, you know, it's all particle collisions from the Big Bang till now, therefore we have no free will. That argument never struck me as completely correct. For one thing, I definitely have the illusion of free will. Secondly, I do have to assign agency to other actors so that I can kind of judge them and know how to respond to them and predict their behavior a little bit. But the third is there does seem to be this inherent unpredictability to the universe, either because of complexity or because of creativity and knowledge creation, or because of how it just comes out of the laws of physics. So just curious if you have a pithier version of that than your full podcast. I doubt I have something pithier, so to speak. I know that the whole concept of free will is a contentious one because people are going to fall on one or other sides of the debate as it's traditionally had. Namely, there are those materialists and scientifically minded types who will just say, look, things are determined by the laws of physics. That's that. It rules out free will. And so if that's the position one takes, that there is no possible state of affairs in a deterministic universe where you can have free will, then free will doesn't exist, okay? So you rule it out from the get-go. My desire is to push back against that and to sort of have a new understanding of what this term free will is that comports with 
a rational understanding of science while also preserving this traditional idea that we have that people make choices and that they're morally responsible for the choices that they make as well. People who deny free will still have a problem. The problem being the same problem that everyone else has, which is that why are human beings so different in this universe? Why are they doing stuff that isn't easily predictable? Why is there nothing in the laws of evolution or the laws of physics that tell us anything about the content of civilization? Why, why do cities look the way they do? Why do books contain the words they do? Okay, so some of us will say, well, okay, it's creativity. Uh, that's a mystery. How, how do we create stuff? So you can phrase it in that. You can have that framing, and I'm fine with that. And or you can stick with also the traditional idea that people have, which instead of talking about this general intelligence capacity to create explanations of the physical world and all that kind of language, which I'm also comfortable using, we could also just say, look, people make choices, real choices. And a real choice means you have free will. That's all free will is about. Now, of course, you can rule that out. You can say, no, no, there's no such thing as free will. Free will is necessarily contradicted by uh, physical laws. And I just don't think you need to go that way. Okay, so pithy. Let me try and be pithy. There is a mystery at the heart of what a person is. One way of formulating this mystery is to say that people create knowledge in the world and this allows for an increased number of choices that they can make. A convenient way of talking about this is to say that human beings, unlike all other entities known in the universe, have something called free will, the capacity to make choices that didn't even exist before the person chose to generate the knowledge that allowed for that choice to be actualized in the world. I liked what the computer scientist Jaron Lanier had to say in an analogous situation. And the analogous situation is there's a mystery to do with time, the nature of time, how we experience time, and consciousness. There are people who deny one or both of these mysteries. But if they do deny one of them, identically one of them, then the mystery crops up in the other place. So if they say, oh, look, consciousness isn't particularly a mystery, then you've got this problem of why it is the present moment in time is different to future times and previous times because we're not experiencing those. Now, if you deny, on the other hand, that time is in any way mysterious at all, then you've got this problem of why it is that consciousness should be located at a particular time rather than other times, or if it is. Again, we return to that same problem of the present moment seems different to all other moments, but a matter of, as a matter of physics, there's nothing special about it. So if you deny the problem in one area, like time, then it tends to crop up in another area, consciousness, and vice versa. I would say the analogous thing happens with free will. And people who deny free will just have the problem in all its force and all its glory and all its mystery crop up, but just under a different label. It's, it's just then called, you know, the problem of choice or the problem of creativity. People are making choices. You know, people who deny free will will still say things like, 
look, there's choice in the world. Clearly, there's not only one option, tea or, you know, coffee or whatever drink you happen to have. You only ever make one choice. You have the tea and not the coffee, but that choice still exists in the world. So I've got this problem of why John chooses this one thing over that other thing. And then we invoke things like creativity, which is still a mystery. And I just want to say, well, free will, we can still have free will. We don't have to say that it, it, it conflicts with laws of physics or a rational understanding of reality. But my most recent thinking on this is that it's all just part of this one big package of mysteries that is people. Consciousness, creativity, free will are aspects of something deeper, a theory we don't have yet. And when we do have that theory, then we'll come to a deeper understanding of things, is my guess, like creativity, consciousness, 